Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Nick Carlisle here, and welcome back to another episode of the Life Enchanted podcast, where I tend to nerd out on all things faith, health, interesting, and optimizing. If you're not already following me on Instagram, at nick.carlisle, that is, go ahead and find me on there, hit that follow button, send me a DM perhaps. I am very active on the gram and would love to connect with you personally. This episode, as always, is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. I have a free 30-page eating guide on there. I have some links to some of my favorite products. I have some hoodies and some shirts I designed. The Truth Pack is on there as well. So go check all of that out. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's get into it. My guest for this episode is author, pastor, speaker, and recently ordained Anglican priest, A.J. Sherrill. A.J. currently pastors St. Peter's Church in South Carolina. Prior to that, he was at Mars Hill in Michigan, and then prior to that, at Trinity Grace in New York City. He has tons of ministry experience under his belt, more than 20 years, and he is relatively young as well, I think. He looks young, doesn't talk very young, but he looks young, so... That's, I guess that's a good compliment. So there you go, AJ. But I came across AJ uh, via social media and was immediately moved and intrigued by his work and his mind and his faith and his teachings. So I figured I'd reach out to try and get him on the show. And luckily for us, he obliged. So without further ado, my interview with AJ Sherrill. So I thought a fitting place for us to start would be with the word awareness. And I want to do this because in my last episode, I was talking about this idea of constantly seeking the kingdom of God, um, and your book titled Quiet seems to be getting at the same thing. So how do you think about that word awareness in regards to spirituality? Um, I'm actually uh, repurposing quiet right now. I just, I just finished a manuscript for my publisher mm. that sort of take, takes quiet and moves it into a, more of a steroid level. So like... Um, the working title is being with God, the absurdity, necessity, and neurology mm. of contemplative prayer. So, um, by neurology, yeah, so, are you going to be getting into like neurochemistry? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. More brain science, like what's happening in our sleep, what's happening in our breath, what's happening in our stress to our brain, to our wow. neuropathways, to sort of cortical thickness, to empathy, compassion levels, like what, what are the things that are sort of coming online when we are contemplating? And then what are ways in which when we don't, we actually shut parts of our brain down, which is where empathy, compassion, forgiveness, a lot of those things are rooted. Um, so it's no wonder that we see society the way that we do. And so the, the sort of the first section of that book, it'll come out in all, autumn of 2021, um, deals with the awareness thing that we're sort of living in absurdity. And when I say absurdity, I mean noise, I mean frenetic pace. M mm. Many of your readers, I'm sure, have read 
John Mark Comer's work. He's a deep friend of mine and just wrote on just how we're rushed and we're just sort of running from place to place. We're living, we're skimming the surface like these rocks on the top of a pond rather than allowing our souls to distill and to become clear. Mm. Um, and so we don't have a lot of clarity. And so our awareness isn't very significant. It's often superficial at best of the divine activity around us because we just our, our society of, in which we're a part of is not constructed in such a way to pay attention to the mysteries of life. Yeah. Um, and they're available for us. Like I begin the book quiet by saying that, you know, the most incredible gift in all of the universe is the radical availability of God's presence. And yet uh, it remains sort of elusive at every moment of our lives. We, we're not aware of it. So awareness happens by, by living counterculturally. It happens through being in nature. It happens through being slow and deliberate. It happens through thoughtfulness and reflection. And um, we're just not set up as a society. No, very few environments encourage that way of life. Mm -hmm. We're bombarded by advertisements, headlines, tweets, social media, uh, the next thing. I mean, you name it. I mean, at, at this point, I just feel like a, a record player because everyone's saying the same thing. No doubt. But truly, for the transformative breakthrough we're looking for, it's going to require an intention of slowing down and being still. And only you can choose to do that. No one's going to do that for you. Mm -hmm. Man, you brought up this cross-connection between psychology and spirituality. I'm truly fascinated by. So let's dive into that a little bit. What are some things that you have uncovered as you've started to rework this book? Yeah, I, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, this is a really cool sort of thing about sleep. So like we imagine that life consists of like living and then sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. So some people will say like, yeah, you sleep for like a third of your life. And so try to resist that. And I, I don't think we realize actually how productive we are in our sleep. Mm. We, we think that sleep is a place of unproductivity. It's actually a place of deep productivity in ways that when we don't get adequate sleep, it makes our waking life less productive and meaningful. I'll give you an example. Your brain for the first four hours of your sleep cycle is healing your body. Your brain for the second four hours of your sleep cycle is healing itself. So like your brain actually doesn't sleep. Your brain is always working, always going to work and trying to set up a flourishing life of shalom. And, um, you know, people will say like, oh, I only need five hours of sleep. Well, that's true because your body will be recovered, but your brain will not. So over the course of time, it will have a price, you will have a price to pay and your brain deteriorates and your neural pathways aren't as, um, connected. You'll have hmm. brain fog, et cetera, et cetera. And so I find that, um, a lot of the Bible, um, actually some of the deepest revelation God does in all of scripture happens while people are sleeping. I mean, when you think about Daniel and his visions, when you think about um, the Lord visiting some of the early gospel narratives, all of the revelation happens while people are sleeping. I mean, consider, you know, the incredible uh, narrative of Adam and Eve. No matter how you read that text, what's so beautiful is that Eve is created while Adam is sleeping. Mm. Adam is created before he even has any consciousness at all. And so there's a beautiful mystery, I think, to the spirituality of sleep. I'm not advocating we'd be lazy and take naps all day. But even Jesus, like, is taking naps in the bottom of the boat. Yeah. Like, is always escaping um, to pray and, I think, had healthy sleep rhythms. And I, I think that's just a part of life that we have lost track of 
with electricity and mm-hmm. with screens and all of this stuff is is actually the, the art and beauty of sleep that's designed to repair you and restore you for the day to come, um, which I think needs to be recovered in our generation. No doubt. Agreed. How do you go about optimizing your sleep knowing uh, what you know now? Yeah, so um, I don't drink wine after 8 o'clock. Alcohol mm. wakes you up. I know yeah. people. some people say it puts you to sleep, so... Like, don't drink alcohol because you'll just get dehydrated, wake up at four, and your heart will be accelerating. It's hard to go back to bed. Mm-hmm. At least it is for me. I've just hit my 40s, and it's just been a different – like, I used to be able to get away with a glass of wine at 10 p.m., and the older I get, the more I realize I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so your diet has something to do with that. Also, your screen intake, so, like, you have blue light coming off on your phones, mm-hmm. and that tells your um, – <clears throat> That tells all of your uh, melatonin to suppress, and it tells your cortisol to keep firing. And when it does that, it doesn't allow you to be in circadian rhythm, which I explore in the book. It's sort of not that complicated, but it's more accessible than you can imagine, but it's hard to describe briefly on a podcast. But your circadian rhythm is actually really important to your sleep cycle. So actually getting up with the sun, or at least trying to, Mm -hmm. your body wants to start winding down once the sun sets. So that's where your cortisol goes down, your melatonin goes up. And so if you're looking at a screen at 10 p.m., what you're doing is you're telling your brain, oh, the sun's out because it's getting blue light. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it harder to fall asleep. Now, this is stuff that a lot of people are beginning to zone in on and become more aware of. But it's really amazing how just like simple things in life that we resist are actually things that are working against the sort of shalom and the way in which God oriented our bodies and brains to function. Yeah. Absolutely. And I could underscore all those things, especially the diet piece. I've seen that eating within an hour or two of going to sleep has had a big impact on my sleep quality because going to bed with a full stomach requires blood to go to your gut and to digest the food Mm -hmm. instead of the blood going to your brain to help your brain repair and relax. The blue light is a huge thing. Getting it completely black and dark in your room is super important. Temperature has been shown to be super important with the chili pads. Yeah, absolutely. You want to be I, I heard someone kind of compare it to you want to you want to get that state of being in the mother's womb where you're bundled up, you're cozy, you're warm and your your brain can just, you know, softly go into these these deep, deep states. Yeah, I, I use a weighted blanket and mm. my, my neuropsychologist, his name's Dr. Tim Royer. Um, he is uh, the psychologist for like the 40 diners and the trailblazers and like people oh, wow. you've heard of. He's amazing. And he actually has his thermostat set to 57 because the the body actually wants to enter into a cold cocoon state. And over the course of the night, his temperature automatically adjusts that when he wakes up in the morning, it's now set at like 71. And so he says, actually, you should go to bed because your body wants to be bundled, but, but it wants a cold atmosphere to start off in. And I found it to be very fascinating. Um, But there's, yeah, there's just all of these things that we actually do have some sort of agency to help put our, our bodies and our brains in a better state for optimization. Yeah. So how about on the neural side of things as far as like uh, affirmations before bed or journaling before bed or in the morning or what are, what are some things related to sleep that can help kind of form these new neural connections or leverage neuroplasticity to, to help us form our minds into Christ-likeness? Yeah, I mean, I like the, um, so I'm an Anglican priest here in Charleston, South Carolina. 
And I love the Liturgy of the Hours, and I wish I was more devoted to them than I am. But I will tell you, there's something beautiful about praying the Compline Prayer, which is the last prayer of the night before you go to bed. Hmm. So you can find it in the Book of Common Prayer. You can do a simple Google search, and you'll find all sorts of resources on fixed hour prayer. But there's something beautiful about letting go. Um, And so having prayers and psalms that you're actually the last part of your day is actually a surrender to the Lord. And when you think about sleep, it's such a vulnerable state of surrender anyway. Mm. It's almost like every day is a reminder that you will someday die and that you have to let go. And so sleep is that daily reminder of letting go. And so it's a beautiful thing before the end of the day. John Eldridge says this in his most recent book, Get Your Life Back, which I thought was so beautiful. Mm. The last prayer of his day is, Lord, I give you everything and everyone. Everything and everyone. And I think about how much when I go to bed, I'm stressed about the things that I've done or left undone. Or I think about conversations in my brain with people that need to be reconciled or resolved mm-hmm. or, or bitterness or things I'm hanging on to that I take into my sleep. And it's like, Lord, I give you everything and everyone. And then how do I pray that, that short prayer service to myself in bed before I turn off the light. It is such a great practice of surrender because I tend to clutch really hard to all the circumstances in my life. No doubt, which that clutching and that small incremental amount of stress that's probably being released, that cortisol that's being released is probably preventing and inhibiting you from getting into those deep stages of sleep, which are so uh, important. I also, I think just to add here, this is valuable. I heard someone talking about the the different brain waves and how our subconscious mind is formed in these different brain waves so when we are young we are constantly kind of in like this flow state kind of like a dream and that's because we have these different brain waves active and that's why these experiences we have um, these traumas we have all these things have such a deep impact on us because we have these different brain waves waves active and when we go through these emotions and these experiences they form deep into our subconscious And Mm. as we are older, we get into those same brain waves right before bed and then right in the morning. So we can activate those subconscious parts of our mind right before bed and in the morning. So doing things, as you said, like releasing everything to God, focusing your mind around him and surrendering everything, we actually are getting into that subconscious and changing kind of our belief structure and how we should be, you know, going about our days. So I think that that was super helpful. So I've been very mindful of that, of, of what am I consuming right before bed and what am I consuming right when I wake up? Um, and how is that forming kind of these subconscious beliefs? So that was cool for me to hear. Yeah, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it best where he says, the, the beginning of the day belongs to you, Lord, mm. and so does the end. And when you think about the bookends of your day, it is like a benediction in social media is such a terrible way to end your day. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, especially with all of the the thoughts of, of jealousy and envy and wanderlust, like to think about the fact that we begin and end our day on our phones is like a deep lament for mm. our generation. Mm. And I am so easily seduced by that. And I don't want to look back on the beginning and ends of my day to think that I started and ended my day um, allowing voices from culture to be the greatest influence of my heart. Um, And it's not that I don't like voices from culture because I do, but wow, there's such a better invitation for, for the triune God to come and, 
and and renew me for the day and then restore me from the day I just lived. And that is what I want the book end of the day to be before I sleep and when I rise. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to get into meditation a bit because that's a word that's been thrown around a lot recently. How do you view meditation in regards to the Christian spiritual life? Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of um, words that are being thrown around are like um, mindfulness and contemplation and things like that. I think a couple things. Um, I'm grateful that things like the mindfulness movement has been happening in like secular space, such as corporate, you mm-hmm. know, America, things like that. Um, but I think it only gets you halfway down the field because mindfulness is rooted in the reality of detachment. So it's about letting go, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a really beautiful thing, letting go of the things that were clutched onto, et cetera, et cetera. But the beautiful thing about Christian contemplation that you can see rooted all the way back to the early church, to the Desert Fathers in quiet, and in, in this book, Being with God, that's coming out, um, I try to give a bunch of scriptural examples where Jesus is going away for hours on end. And we know that um, prayer to God isn't just like talking at God. Like eventually you run out of things to say. Mm-hmm. And so if Jesus is going to pray all night, it stands to reason that at some point he was still and quiet and just listened and, and, and didn't even have to hear words from the Father. It was enough to be with the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that what contemplation gives us through is, is the second half of mindfulness. It's not detachment, but we can move beyond that into proper attachment. Because John 15 will say things like, abide in me, abide in me. And what Christ wants us to do is to attach to the life source. And so when we realize that when we detach from the things that need to be cast off from us, we need to attach to our life source, which through the Holy Spirit, we attach into the beautiful triune God who is attached relationship, Father, Son, Spirit going round and round in in intimacy. Mm -hmm. And when we attach into that rhythm, into that dance, it helps us to be known, to be loved, um, to not have to accomplish anything or perform, but to simply be in the dance in the flow, if you will, mm. with the divine. And so I think that when we get into contemplation, when we move into meditation, the goal is, yes, the first part of it is to detach from the things that you need to let go of. But the second part is to find a place where you are abiding, where you are attached to the source of life, where you are recovering your identity that your identity is received not achieved that you don't have to perform to be somebody that you are more loved than you can possibly ever know and so um how do we attach to what god is constantly pronouncing over us and that we are sons and daughters of the triune god and to live in that space so i see as a lot of um meditation is about um sort of being with god um we're good at praying at god we're good at praying to God. Um, we're good at listening for God. Mm-hmm. But that other stage of being with God, where words are welcomed but not necessary, mm. I think is a place that takes time and intention, but is a place of real fruitful relationship and abundance. Yeah, agreed. And it takes time. It's like an onion being peeled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love that that Jesus prayer. Um, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me. Yeah. And I'll often just pray that over and over with intention. And, and inevitably, your thoughts come to you. They're racing. And there's emails to check, calendar items to do, relationships mm-hmm. that need repair, et cetera, et cetera. And at that time, it's like all those things will come to mind. Well, that's when I go back to the John Eldridge prayer. God, I give you everything and everyone. Mm. Everything. Like, 
Jesus really wants to take it and not just some of it, everything yeah, and everyone, because when we give it to him, then we can be embraced and realize that, that it's okay to just be with God, that we can be with that. And then you get back to your Jesus prayer and you just root yourself in breathing and give yourself to the one who loves you. And it's a really remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another thing that I found to be helpful is I'm not sure the exact name for it, but I'll call it the Yahweh prayer of on the inhale, Yah, and then the exhale, Way, Way, Yah. And that kind of is a, a good way to center your mind around Christ and the, the the random thoughts of, you know, what I have to do today and I need a haircut and all these things come about, but then just keeping that rhythm of Yahweh. Yahweh and just the name Yahweh you know I am is is so powerful and you can start contemplating Mm -hmm. on those things and but that's been super helpful for me as well and another thing there is dang it I'm forgetting the language of it but Sharon Salzberg who's a meditation teacher mentions it quite a bit it's a love and dang it I'm, I'm missing it right now but this idea of focusing on other people and and seeing Christ in other people and wishing and thinking of the goodness of other people and hoping for joy for other people and happiness and kind of getting outside of yourself and, you know, just just thinking, AJ, you know, like, man, I hope he is doing well. God bless him for what he's doing in the church in Charleston. I hope he is smiling right now. I hope his family is thriving, you know, and just getting into that rhythm of thinking of someone else and genuinely hoping for their joy, I think is a super powerful practice. Yeah, I, I, one of the phrases I've heard that called is compassion contemplation. Mm. And, and um, what you'll find is is if you have someone right now who's particularly annoying to you um, and you want to have, you feel convicted because you don't have compassion or empathy or a sense of just a soft heart toward them, Yeah, that, that we find that actually praying contemplatively for them increases our capacity to have empathy for them. And I can find that to be so helpful and restorative because it is so easy for me to go throughout my day holding grudges no doubt. and just being upset with people and being bitter and thinking the lowest common denominator about others. And it is such a good practice for me to pray in that way because it does, it does do something. It enlarges. It doesn't make maybe what they've done right, but it enlarges my capacity to see things from, from a larger frame. Mm. And that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, it just came to me. It's she, Sharon Charlesberg, refers to it as loving kindness. Is is the name for that as well? Mm-hmm. Right on. So I want to move into spiritual disciplines a bit. So can you give us just a basic overview for people who are unfamiliar? A lot of the listeners probably are familiar, mm-hmm. but for those unfamiliar, what are spiritual disciplines? And then if you could get into a few that have really moved the needle for you, that would be awesome. Yeah, spiritual disciplines are are simply a pathway. And the real, the, the, the driving goal is the presence of God. And so spiritual disciplines are the different pathways in which we can encounter God. And so let's demystify spiritual disciplines as the point or the end game. They're really a means mm. for, for opening the heart, the mind, and our bodies to experiencing more of God in our midst. And so we all have different ways because of our personalities um, that are just more intuitive and helpful for us. Um, so for example, a lot of spiritual disciplines, you know, it might be certain ways of reading the Bible, or it might be a nature walk, or it might be contemplative prayer, or it might be serving, um, or it might be, um, you know, aligning yourself with the poor and the oppressed. Like these are things that require intention. And Dallas Willard will say this, that 
Um, you know, in the Protestant world, we're so obsessed with grace and salvation that anything that reeks of like doing things gets put into a category of like earning and earning is bad, you know, so don't, all you have to do is be there and you don't actually have, it's like, no, no, no. Like we're actually called to pursue God in covenant relationship. Mm -hmm. And yes, salvation is graced, but formation is cultivated. And so if you're going to cultivate formation, it requires effort. So God isn't opposed to effort. God is opposed to earning, but God is not opposed to effort. And spiritual disciplines are simply the effort that we put in to create space to be with God and to be in the presence. So for me, I'm an Enneagram three, if you're aware of that. So Mm -hmm. that's like achiever, performer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, there are ways in which, you know, reading books, reading the Bible, teaching a course, all that stuff are really good disciplines for me. And they're really natural and easy for me. But the parts that are hard for me are, are being with God, contemplation, solitude, so I find that I need both of these. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing I encourage people to do is think about spiritual disciplines in terms of head, heart, and hand. So if your head is like the rational, cerebral place of your life, what is a practice that really helps you grow in that way? Do you veer toward that or away from that? Same thing with your heart. What is a practice that helps you emotionally become centered? Do you find in your life that you veer toward those things or you veer away from those things? And then you think about your hand. What are some practices that you can apply toward life, like service projects, um, like hospitality, um, like some of these things? Do you find yourself veering away from that or veering toward those things? So it's good to name sort of the way God made you. You have majors and minors. Mm. There's ways in which because of our personality, we naturally veer to some practices and we naturally avoid others. As an Enneagram three, it's easy for me to veer toward my emotions and toward my head. It's hard for me to veer toward serving with my hands. So I, I, I continue to bolster the things I'm good at with my emotions in my head, but I also need to check in with the fact that there's parts of my formation that sometimes go omitted because I don't always engage my body in my service to God. And so I'm constantly paying attention to that in my spiritual disciplines. Yeah. So self-awareness is a huge key of that. Oh, it's so big to know what you don't know. I mean, most of life we just live sort of subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And so for you to get clear, and that's why the Enneagram was so meaningful for me, is it started naming so many things that I subconsciously had suppressed. Yeah. And it really helped me bring those into the light and to face those things in grace and to move into more of a holistic way of being. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. I was saving the Enneagram for later, but let's get into that right now because it was brought up. So a uh, brief overview of the Enneagram for the listeners. Again, a lot of them are probably familiar, but if you give a brief overview of what it is and how do we go about, you touched on this a little bit, but how do we go about applying the Enneagram to our spiritual formation? Yeah, so the Enneagram are nine basic personalities that um, are typically strategies for how we compensate and cope and thrive in a beautiful and broken world. They, they name your motives. So mm-hmm. if you've done really great behavioral theories like Myers-Briggs or um, DISC or Strength Finders, this is a little bit different in that it gets under those things into motives of why you do what you do, not just what you do. Mm-hmm. That can be really helpful because two people can actually manifest the same behaviors but do it because of different reasons. 
So you can see the same what in two people, but they actually might be driven by different whys. And so that's really important. And so the Enneagram just helps you get into the why of your life. Of why do I do that? What am I really after? Why do I strategize to show up that way in that situation with that person, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the Enneagram is different than identity. Your identity is who you are at the core of your being, which I suggest in my book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. Your identity is that you're beloved. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Amen. It is, it is what it is, right? So when you start to explore your Enneagram personality, you don't have to go into shame because your personality is just a strategy. Your personality is not your identity. Your identity is not up for negotiation, but your personality has been forged over time. And you can continue to grow in your personality, not that we necessarily change it, but we grow toward health in our personalities through spiritual disciplines. At least that's the hope. Yeah. And that we can grow to be the healthiest version of who God created us to be. That that's sort of the hope of sanctification, of becoming holy and becoming helpful in the world. How do you go about helping people find which number they are? Because a lot of the tests out there are not accurate. Even the one from the Enneagram Institute, which is kind of the leading website on this thing, I took theirs and it was wrong and it cost money and it was like 140 questions. So how do you suggest people come up with what number they are? Yeah, so I look at like it as a filter. So like imagine um, that at the top of the filter is the widest part. The idea is to do a few things that narrow it down. So I, I, I don't in any way despise people taking that first initial test. I think it's helpful mm -hmm. because from it, what I would say is let's imagine, look at the four top ones. Um, you'll obviously have one or two that are strongest and then it'll rank it, you know, one through nine in terms of its priority and how you're, you took the test. Um, so it kind of helps you get a ballpark. So, you know, yeah. you have some three in you, some seven, some eight and some one, right? Let's just say, and it's like, okay, what's my core? And so the next thing that I recommend people do is then just say, now that you're down, you've got it down to three or four, read them, read the descriptions of each of them and see which one sort of resonates the most. Mm. And then I would say, bring in a few people that know you. Um, again, they don't have access to your motives, but they can, they do know your behavior, whether it's your spouse, um, your, you know, your partner that you're with or your friend or a parent or someone close to you to say, Hey, which of these sounds most like me? And then if you're still struggling, uh, what Father Richard Rohr told me a long time ago when I studied with him was that <laughs> he said, AJ, it's the one that brings you the greatest amount of humiliation. <laughs> and it was like, oh, are you serious? Yeah. But here's the thing. When you know that, that it's not your identity, it's your personality, you can face that, right? Yes. So um, humiliation was really helpful for me. I'm like, oh, my goodness. When I read the three, I feel like someone's just read my journal. Yes. And um, – and if you're still struggling, let's say you've got it down to two, it's maybe a three and a seven, then what I would say is look at the wings, which are the numbers just to the right or to the left of both of those. I knew I wasn't a seven because I couldn't be an eight or a six in mm. my wing. I knew I was a three because that four right there, oh my word, that is just, <laughs> I am a three wing four to a T. And, um, you know, my wife definitely affirms that reality. So, um, that's a, that's a good way to funnel how you can think about all those different ways to get clearer and clearer over time. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's great advice. I am a four wing three and my wife is a three wing four. So we're go. all in good company. And I had that same struggle. I thought I would, four spoke to my soul, but I also had some elements of seven, and I was kind of going back and forth between the numbers and correct me if I'm wrong, but you can have a high percentage of your core number and then a significantly high percentage of 
your your second number say or the next highest number correct like you don't you don't get placed into one single box of one single number and you can't have any aspects of the others well the the idea is that they're all in you somewhere Mm -hmm. you know and the mystics talk about how they're the nine faces of god that all of these numbers coming together reveal more about god than they do separately and it's sort of a case for community in the church like we actually need each other to present god better to the world than we can alone yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, they're all somewhere in you as well. So mm-hmm. some are just stronger than others. And it's very possible that two or three of them are very strong in, in your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also recommend people on the Enneagram Institute looking at the levels of health at the bottom of the numbers and seeing like, okay, when I'm at a level two or three or even one, when I'm doing my best, what am I similar to? Am I similar to this level two, four? And then also for the worst, like when I'm a level six, four, who's struggling, when I'm struggling, do I identify with those? That was super helpful for me in identifying which one I am. So tons of good resources on there. Uh, You mentioned Father Richard Rohr, and I did not know that you studied with him, so I want to get into that a little bit. Were you at the CAC with him, or how did your paths cross, or when, where were you studying with him? Yeah, back in the, um, I don't know, this must have been seven to ten years ago, I was doing my doctorate studies at Fuller, and they offer doctorate courses on location with different thinkers and theologians and practitioners. And so uh, he was doing a pilot for what's now called the Living School. And so he had a, um, an invitation with Fuller for just a handful of us to go out there to be sort of guinea pigs where we got doctoral credit for the course. And then he got some guinea pigs to experiment on for his living course that never <laughs> runs out of the center. That's awesome. So it was a pretty good – it was a pretty cool deal. And um, we got to be, I guess, as close as you can be in a week's time. Um, and he – Enneagram was not on the radar. He actually just like made mention of it and we, we got him off track for a half day because we were all so interested in the Enneagram. We were like, wait, what? Say more. <laughs> and none of us had ever heard of it before. And it was amazing. And, you know, a few years later, the thing just got so popular. And, yeah. Um, I actually ended up doing my dissertation on it after that conversation with Father Roar because I just started reading insatiably on it. And then it just, you know, went viral. Um, so it's just been interesting to see its proliferation in evangelical and Christian circles. Yeah, definitely blowing up recently. It's been pretty cool. What specifically, other than the Enneagram, did Father Roar impart in you that really helped shape your spirituality or help you navigate your relationship with God or anything related? What, what did you take away from that <laughs> encounter with him? Yeah, so he sent us out this one day. He said, hey, I want you all to go walk my neighborhood and come back and let's talk about what you notice. So we all went, probably took a half hour. We come back and he says, you know, so what did you notice? And there might have been 10 of us there. And, you know, it's like someone says, well, I noticed this fence and it was kind of run down or I noticed this cat. I'm not much of a cat person or I noticed this car and it was rusty or I noticed this tree and it was kind of gnarly the way this branch was coming out, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, okay. He says, what I want you to notice is how self-referential we are. In other words, that you walk through life evaluating it, whether or not you like it, Hmm. as if we are the center of the universe, as if matter and time and space exist to be pleasing to us, as if we are the center of the universe. 
And he said, it's very, it's a very different place to walk in the earth to say there's that tree and it is what it is. Whether I like that branch or not doesn't matter because that tree was probably there before I was born and it will probably outlive me. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's enough to just value the tree for the sake that it's a beautiful tree um, rather than trying to critique whether or not you like its branches. And that was like such a like, oh, my goodness, I need to stop here because I walk through life as if I'm the center as if things need to sort of adapt to my preferences and tastes. And um, it was just a repudiation on <laughs> really being American yes, <laughs> for yeah, the most part. That's but so it was good. really helpful just to be part of the larger reality of this beautiful thing called the universe mm-hmm. rather than feeling like I have to master it and be in front of it and be heard and known and be an influencer. It's enough to be a part of it and to have joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you're not a, the star of the movie. Yes. That's a super helpful framework. If you were going to recommend one or two Roar books to somebody, because he he has a very interesting mind and interesting theology, and sometimes I think he is absolutely brilliant, and sometimes I'm thinking, what is this dude talking about? I need to do some (laughs) research. Um, So if you were going to recommend some of his content or books or anything like that, where would you suggest people start diving into his stuff? Yeah, I love The Naked Now. I mm-hmm. think that's a wonderful one on contemplation. Agreed. Um, I think Falling Upward has a lot of really helpful tips, especially as you get older. Um, it's so funny. I've never met more 20-somethings in my life that feel like they're starting your second half of life. <laughs> and it's like you're 22. I'm not sure. But um, as you get older, that book is really helpful to navigate. Um, I, you know, I, His Christology, I don't, I don't go with him there. In fact, we hashed that out in his office because he was just conceiving that idea of the universal Christ and I am uh, orthodox in my um, Christology to, to where I, I can say the creed um, with um, allegiance and confidence in that. Um, and a, a lot of the things that he proposes in uh, the universal Christ uh, were refuted in the early creeds, um, you know, such as Arianism. You get some uh, Gnosticism in there, and you sort of get Christ detached from a Jewish context. Mm-hmm. Um and so I honor him. I'm grateful for him. I've learned so much from him. I don't. I don't go where he goes with his Christology. It sort of. It sort of hacks at the root of my allegiance to um, the what we have in the creeds. Um, yeah. So, but uh, you know, some people have found that really helpful, and I guess we'll all find out in due time. But uh, I, I have a real particular loyalty to historic Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I was a little bit lost with him as well in the universal Christ stuff. It's like, okay, this is a whole new paradigm that I've never heard talked about or explained. I grew up in the church, and this is kind of a game changer. So I, I didn't know how to navigate those waters. So I'm glad you said that. That helps kind of bring a little bit of clarity on my end. Um, but nonetheless, super interesting. And even if there's a little bit of truth in there, which I'm sure there is, it's it's helpful to kind of form your mind around what, what God is and what Christ is. Um, so I think there's there's goodness there. Yeah, the, the thing that I, I challenged him with, uh, and he challenged me back, it was really beautiful and a, a wonderful disagreement, um, and at the same time, a wonderful space of respect and honor, was that when the Magi show up, um, who are the last people, I think, that were expected to show up and be the first to uh, be with the Christ child, um, they don't admire him. They adore him. And a lot of what is coming out right now of the emerging generations around sort of returning to sort of a Aryan Christology is we can tap into Christ consciousness. Jesus showed us the way. 
And that, well, yeah, that's true. But Jesus is also the Son of God who was begotten, not made, who is eternally with the Father, and whose death and resurrection in human history changes the course of the future. And so there is a uniqueness to the Son of God. And I always go back to the Magi, that they didn't merely admire the child. They saw something unique in the Christ child, and they adored him. They worshipped him. And so that's where Richard and I parted ways in that conversation. Mm. That's super good. And by, so by adoration, you mean there, there's more of a separation between us and the Christ. Both fully God and fully human at the same time. Mm-hmm. Begotten, not made. He's uniquely different and at the same time came in our flesh. That, uh, that, that is the difference is the eternality of the Son of God. Yeah. Uh, and we are finite beings who were not always. We will always be but we were not always. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sun has always been and always will be. And so that puts the sun in a different class of, um, of, of worship, of being able to be worthy of honor, glory, power, and praise. Yes, that's good. Earlier, you mentioned the Desert Fathers, and this is something that's fairly new to me and that's been eye-opening. Can you just talk about who the De- Desert Fathers <clears throat> were and what traditions we've gained from how they went about their spirituality? Yeah, so what happens when um, when Christianity gets merged with the Roman Empire, uh, Constantine and beyond, is um, everybody becomes baptized as part of society. There's a kind of um, diluted Christianity that happens because everything gets regulated now by the state. You're Christian not because the Holy Spirit um, has been imparted into your soul and redeemed you from within through repentance and confession of sin and faith in Christ. You're now a Christian because you were born into the Roman Empire. And mm. what it does is it creates a church that's really weak and it's really um, cultural. And so the Desert Fathers are a repudiation of this cultural Christianity, which in many ways America finds itself in a very similar place to today and for the last hundred years or so, uh, maybe even before then. So the Desert Fathers, they seek to um, sort of resist that sort of cultural Christianity. So they go out to the desert to pray. Um, to fast, to seek the presence of God. Over the course of time, they realize it's really hard to do this alone, which was called eremitic monasticism. It's, it's where we get the word hermit. Right? Is that where eremos so, comes from as well? Is it, is it rooted in that, that Greek word? is I think it's a Greek word, eremos. Eremos. Eremos, where Jesus yes. was sent out to the eremos, the wilderness, the solitary place. So the Eremitics go out there solitary and alone. Mm. And it's later they realize it's really hard to do this alone. Let's do it in community that you get what's called Cenobitic communities, which is where the monastic tradition came from, where you have a cluster of people that um, do work and do prayer, and they can sustain their lives and that they see their vocation as prayer. So a lot of that developed, the Desert Fathers would then you know, um, develop out of a resistance to cultural Christianity. And mm. so a lot of their wisdom was pinned down in what's called the Philokalia, sort of the, 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 the big book of, of Desert Father, Father Wisdom. And that's sort of a, a big prayer book that the Eastern Orthodox tradition prays out of. Um, so Say that's that name again? A little, the Eastern Orthodox tradition? The, the book? Yeah, Philokalia. It's Philokalia is how it's spelled. So Philokalia is how it's pronounced. And it's a very long collection of volumes of desert fathers whose wisdom was recorded and passed down 
Mm. Um, and so the Eastern tradition, um, we have a lot to learn from them. They've, they've sort of, um, you know, kept that sort of way of thinking about and praying with God alive um, in ways that the Western church is now beginning to say, ah, oh, I see our brothers and sisters over there that, you know, separated from the Catholic church in, the, in 1054. We have a lot to learn of coming back with them and realizing we are actually going after the same thing, mm-hmm. but in different ways. Yeah. Is, is this the birthplace of Christian mysticism as well within the Desert Fathers tradition? I mean, you might say that. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone like Richard Rohr would say that you can even see mysticism in Paul and some of the early New Testament writings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is certainly a sense of pursuing the divine um, in ways where they were looking for an encounter, um, in ways that they were looking to be faithfully um, sort of um, enraptured by God who was very present with us. Mm-hmm. Do you have any recommended readings on any of that? The Desert Fathers, Christian mysticism, the Eastern traditions, anything like that? Oh, so many. Um, yeah. uh, Bishop Colostus Rare, W-A-R-E, that was a really helpful guide for me. In fact, if you just look at the appendix of the book I wrote a long, a long ago called Quiet, it will give you a lot of, um, all the footnotes there point to the people that inspired me as I wrote that book. Um, and there are just honestly it's been so long since i wrote that book um there's so many that have come and gone um and madame jean guyon is a is a more modern day one okay um you know you you even get into to julian of norwich Mm -hmm. you've read showings you know she was a wonderful mystic that Mm -hmm. sort of outlines her experience of the divine um the tradition goes very very deep and there's so many names it's hard to know where to start and where to end yeah agreed Awesome, man. Well, we are running out of time here. This has been wonderful. Um, To wrap things up, can you suggest three books from any genre, really? We've touched on a a couple authors and and people, but three books to the listeners that that you think would be helpful in their spiritual formation. Yeah, so I'll put on my my pastor hat first. Um, I would say never leave the Gospels. I know that feels like um, you know, are we allowed to name the Bible? I just find so many Christians right now are are just not aware. They're they're we're becoming biblically illiterate, mm-hmm. and um, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you don't learn His words and live His ways. Mm-hmm. Discipleship is purely learning the words of Jesus and living the ways of Jesus. That's all it is, yeah. and that's enough to last a lifetime. So never leave the Gospels in your life. Be in them every day somewhere. And knowing and just letting the words of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus get inside you. Um, another thing I would recommend, you know, we were going to talk about Sabbath and mm-hmm. we ran out of time. There's a book by Wayne Muller called Sabbath that I recommend. John Mark Comer a long time ago recommended it to me. It was a big influence for him and it's become a, a really important book for me. Um, he's a wonderful mystic writing on Sabbath and, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones. But there's so much good in there. It's a really restful book to walk through. Beautiful. Um, on hallowing a day to, to meet with the presence of God and live into the wonder of what it means to be human. Mm. And then the last one I would say, I, I'm very much into first century context and understanding the New Testament um, from the land of Israel and from the Jewish perspective. Um, and so uh, I, I would say a really accessible book to begin, if, if that's something you're interested in, is my friend Lois Tverberg uh, wrote a book called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. Again, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus by Lois Tverberg. And she helps you sort of gain some clarity on some of the nuances 
in the first century context that as you're reading the Gospels are going to shed new light on what's really actually happening here. And so I think Christians should really um, think about getting back uh, to the time of Jesus to understand the the land in which he walked yes. um, is really important to understanding the words in which he gave. I will definitely be checking that one out as I need to um, develop my knowledge of, of all that context and, and whatnot. Radman, AJ, this has been wonderful. Where can people find you online? Uh, if you have my name, AJ Sherrill, uh, you can search that and find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And um, I'm in a church in Charleston called St. Peter's Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. So drop in if you're ever around. And uh, yeah, we'd love to meet you. Beautiful. And all your books are on Amazon, I saw. So you guys can feel free to check those out. I will put links to them in the show notes and a link to your church as well. AJ, thanks again for doing this, dude. Yeah, great to see you, Nate. You too, man. A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout out to Capital Floats, aka my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com. 